Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Today, we're jumping back into a topic we've discussed before, philanthropy. Institutional philanthropy is in a remarkable era of expansion and experimentation, and there are a lot of wealthy folks out there with money these days looking for new means of giving it away. And many of them are starting to do so earlier in their lives than ever before. They give away billions of their own money. If you added it up, it would total more than the GDP of many countries. They are part of a new class of mega philanthropists, billionaires directing their profits to solve the world's problems. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg promising to give away 99% of his shares of the company to charity in a letter to his newborn daughter. Warren Buffett making another mega donation. The billionaire chairman of Berkshire Hathaway giving nearly $3 billion of his holdings in the company's stock to five recipients, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and four family charities. It's part of Buffett's plan to give away his entire fortune. One thing these foundations have in common these days is the chase for high impact. They're becoming more proactive in pursuing policy agendas and, in doing so, are transforming the institutional landscape of philanthropy. On this episode, we're going to explore the idea of effectiveness and impact in philanthropy from a couple of different angles. We'll start with Ben Soskis, who's a researcher here at the Urban Institute and a historian of philanthropy. He's going to set the table on how some people are thinking about this new era. There are these two dynamics at play now in the sector And they're both critical in their orientation, but they come from very different points. On the one hand, you have a general sense that the kind of old philanthropy, the way it's traditionally been practiced, is not impactful enough. Ben explains that, on the other hand, you have this profound upsurge of concern about impact. We're now in a world in which plutocratic power, however it's uh, arrayed, you know, even with benevolent intent, is a problem. And so philanthropy, even if it's done well, if it's impactful, raises a whole host of other questions. So you basically, if you're a philanthropist these days, you have to worry about not being impactful and being too impactful in a sense. And it's, it's a real, I think it can be a real challenge to figure out how to reconcile those two. So you have these two interesting questions. One, if there's going to be philanthropy, how do foundations make sure their funds are allocated as effectively as possible? And two, even if they are effective or maybe especially if they're effective, are there larger issues with the role philanthropy has in a democratic society? For the first question, we'll turn to Phil Buchanan. Phil is the president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy and author of the new book, Giving Done Right. We work with donors, foundations, as well as individual donors to try to help them to be more effective. So we provide a range of different resources, research on issues like strategy, how do you assess performance in philanthropy, which is not easy. Phil thinks about effectiveness in four ways. It's about what are you trying to do? What are your goals? And being clear and specific about those goals. Secondly, it's about how are you trying to do it? So what are the strategies? So, you know, those would be the strategies. Then the third component, I think, is the implementation. Like actually, and for, for donors, that's about how do you work with other donors, with nonprofits? Because Even the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as big as they are, can't get anything done alone, right? So implementation is tricky. And then finally, how are we doing? The performance assessment. So uh, 
what is the information that will allow us to know whether we're on track or not and how to iterate and change. So it's goals, strategies, implementation, and indicators, I think, are the elements of effectiveness if you're trying to maximize your impact in whatever area that you're working. Phil says that funders will miss the mark if they're not thinking about the strategy, implementation, and measurement. And he gets frustrated with an analogy that's often made. I I think the biggest mistake people make in philanthropy is to analogize everything to investing in business and to not understand the way in which philanthropy and nonprofit work is distinctly different. So if you think every framework or approach from investing or business translates, then you make certain predictable mistakes like you look for this simple universal performance measure that's an analog to return on investment or profit. And then you focus on dumb measures that don't tell you much like overhead ratios, for example. Or I've seen donors that tout the increase in the number of lives touched by the nonprofits they're supporting, because that's something you can you can sort of compare across organizations, but it's essentially meaningless because you could give everybody a lollipop and you would have touched a lot of lives. But let's be clear. Most philanthropies are looking to do more than hand out candy. The desire for impact is leading a lot of foundations to think about other ways they might spend money. And many are now starting to wade into advocacy to achieve goals. Arnold Ventures, formerly known as the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, is taking this path. Kelly Ree is the president of Arnold Ventures and spoke about making that transition and how it started with asking a few tough questions. Two years ago, when I took on this role leading the organization, we really spent the next year as a leadership team uh, with our co-founders thinking about what is it that Arnold Ventures is trying to accomplish What is the unique perspective that we bring to philanthropy? And are we really doing as much as we can with the resources that we bring to the table? Certainly, operating as the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, we were doing great work. We were funding really a large number of research and nonprofit projects that were working to drive change in a a number of areas. But as we really thought about the impact that we wanted to make, we came to the recognition that we can't outspend the problems we're trying to solve. And if we want to create lasting change at scale, at national scale, we would have to work differently. And that really, for us, working differently is being focused on policy change because changing policy can have an impact you know, that outlasts and outscales what we can do on our own. As nonprofits, philanthropic foundations fall under the umbrella of nonprofit organization known as 501c3s. These charities are prohibited from doing a substantial amount of lobbying and from doing any electioneering, but there are special restrictions attached to foundations. Basically, they can't do any lobbying at all. Kelly and Arnold Ventures saw value in developing a complementary part of the foundation through a 501c4 that would be allowed to engage in unlimited direct advocacy on issues they care about. If we wanted to be about policy change, we recognized that the way that we were set up was limiting our ability to really affect policy. And so uh, at the beginning of 2019, we reincorporated as Arnold Ventures, and we are now an organization that does work on both the C3 and C4 sides to maximize opportunity and minimize injustice for everyone. And so while we were about that, when we operated as a foundation, we now 
can drive change, fund change, and implement change in a more holistic and complete way. And here's how Ben explains it. What um, the Arnolds have done and a few other funders is basically, instead of having a private foundation that only a private foundation that was subject to the rules governing foundations, which means they can't do any lobbying. There's tight regulations on what kind of for-profit investments they can do. They basically are expanding their toolkit. So through an LLC, they would have a private foundation, a C4 that allowed them to do electioneering, get involved in in election work, do do more lobbying, and then a for-profit investment arm. Kelly sees the work of their nonprofit C3 investments and their C4 advocacy as complementary and a way to increase their overall impact. So while much of the work we continue to do today is still C3 or nonprofit work, we recognize that policy happens in in a political environment. And as a foundation, as a private foundation specifically, there was a very bright line as to where we could not move forward in the policymaking process. And so that, that left us with this sense that we were doing a lot to drive policy change, but not actually seeing it through because there were limits to how far we could fund those efforts. And so we see now that we can engage more holistically in the policy change process in a way that we couldn't previously. This drive for impact and the willingness to experiment on strategies and instruments has really taken over the entire sector, not just the large national philanthropies. Smaller regional foundations that have been around for decades are looking to make bigger impacts too. Lenka Clark is the president of the Hudson Weber Foundation, a community-based philanthropy in Detroit. She says that local perspective is key. I don't think you could be better placed than a foundation that is there in that place. That is absolutely the asset and value that we bring as a as a local foundation. And I have been really pleased to see as nationals are in Michigan or moving into Michigan that they are eagerly looking for local partners and respecting the relationships that we've built up over time and our knowledge of, of sort of our landscape. And for community-based foundations to have impact, collaboration is critical. Our foundation when it began, was one of like one or two foundations in this city. So I think it's been interesting just to think about their evolution, just sort of the the ecosystem that's kind of risen up around them. And frankly, I've been able to make some of the case around the new areas that we're moving into by being able to point to partners that are, that are also now moving into some of the longstanding priorities of the foundation. So more philanthropies are looking to move into advocacy and community work. And on the whole, they're looking to be more impactful. But alongside these trends comes a great deal of skepticism. Sure, philanthropy wants to be more impactful, but there are concerns that philanthropy can have too much influence. Ben Soskis from Urban says this taps into a broader skepticism. Philanthropies always claim to be serving the public good, but at a very fundamental essence, it has also been a suspect category in American thought. And that's something that I think Americans are, at least recently, are coming to terms with again. Again, as a historian, this has a long legacy. So, you know, we think of Americans have a identity as kind of the nation of givers, and that's not wrong. I mean, we, there, there is empirical evidence that we actually do give more in, in certain respects than other countries. But there's a kind of counter narrative to that, 
which is equally strong, which is that there is a deep suspicion of people who have too much power, even if they if they're using it in you know philanthropic terms. And that power becomes more problematic as a reflection of economic concentration. This concern has been best voiced by Anand Giridardas in recent years. He wrote a book called Winners Take All that takes on wealthy philanthropists and the role they're playing in our society. Here's Anand on The Daily Show from earlier this year. We live in this time in which rich people, you can't walk down the street in Manhattan or other parts of the country without bumping into a rich person trying to change the world, right? Mark Zuckerberg's trying to change the world. Elon Musk is going to try to change the world. Jeff Bezos changing the world. They're all changing the world. More money being given away than has ever been given away in the history of the world. Young people, all, you know, elite graduates, elite campuses... We want to go to Africa, start a social enterprise, mm-hmm. turning recycled poop into coffee. Right. Um, <laughs> with tote bags, Bono is involved, yes. a red iPhone case you get right. for free. And the question is, why is it that this era of extraordinary elite generosity, which is real, happens to coincide with an age of extraordinary elite hoarding? The very same class of billionaires and plutocrats who do so much to give and constantly talk about how much they give have a monopoly on the future in this country. And so the question then becomes, what's the relationship between all this nice stuff elites do and this elite predation? And the relationship that I discovered when I reported this book was that it's this nice, it's these nice deeds, this sprinkling of nice deeds that help us uphold a system in which rich people can monopolize the future, hoard progress, and kill the American dream. Ben summarizes Anand's argument this way. A lot of the elite have fashioned their their kind of philanthropic engagement is by claiming that they, um, you know, they give back and they do so without having to give up anything. So it is fundamentally that philanthropy for them is really almost explicitly a way to preserve their own status and privileges. And so, you know, the argument that kind of elites that Anand is, is surveying goes something like, we make lots of money and we give part of it back to you and everybody wins. And Anand kind of chronicles why that's not the case, that basically the only worthwhile philanthropy in his book is philanthropy that undermines its own status and that there's, you know, that inequality and uh, the kind of plutocratic bias in politics has produced all these damages and all these harms that philanthropists are then kind of after the fact trying to remedy. And so the much easier way to, to do good is to stop doing harm. Kelly Reed, the president of Arnold Ventures, thinks Anand does have a point, and it helps drive the philanthropy's work. I believe there is merit to his critique. Philanthropy does have limited accountability. And, you know, we take that very seriously. And so we try to be transparent and open in what we do. We try to not only disclose what we fund, but why we're funding it. And we do that because we don't want to be dark. We want the world to know what we're doing, not only to be transparent so there's no hidden agenda, but we want, your, we want feedback. We are, a, we are doing this work to try to leave the world in a better place than we found it. And so we want others to know what we're doing so they can tell us, hey, look, this is working, or actually it's not. Kelly believes that there is a unique role for philanthropy. I would also say that philanthropy at its best can be in a place of innovation, not because we're necessarily coming up with innovative ideas, but we are able to take risks and to experiment in a way that others are limited. We take the criticism, you know, that we have too little accountability very seriously and do our best 
to be transparent, open, and data-focused, evidence-focused. But I, I don't want to lose in this debate the important role that philanthropy can play in really being a place where new solutions to societal problems can be identified. In other words, it's precisely because philanthropy is unaccountable that it can serve an important civic function. It can take risks and fail and doesn't face a market test or angry voters. Phil Buchanan, president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy, thinks the questions from Anand and others are important to raise at this moment. I think, you know, critique of philanthropy and of big donors is really healthy, which isn't to say I agree with it all either, right? You know, so I think what's good is that donors are asking themselves, well, if, for example, we're trying to influence policy, are we doing it in a way that's sufficiently informed by the people who we're seeking to help? Or are we doing it in a way, and I, I would argue like Newark, New Jersey and, and the Zuckerberg, Cory Booker, Chris Christie you know, initiative is an example of a sort of top-down approach in which people in communities were not consulted sufficiently. And for that, among many other reasons, it didn't work out so well. And I think that's not the way to approach you know, major policy change. And, and so I, I hope that people reflect on that and, and, and learn from those kinds of mistakes. But Phil also pushes back on some of the broader critiques. On the other hand, I think it's just too simplistic to say big philanthropy undermines democracy when we could point to a lot of examples where philanthropy has actually led to the strengthening of democracy because it has, for example, helped fund nonprofits that secured basic civil and human rights for people, whether people of color or gay, lesbian, transgender people. You know, the marriage equality movement was heavily supported by by philanthropy. To me, you know, I mean, people would differ on this, but my strong view is that strengthened our democracy because it gave people basic rights that they had been denied. Or look at criminal justice reform in which you're literally restoring, in some cases, you know, the right to vote from people who have lost the right to vote. Philanthropy has played a major role there. Philanthropy is a major source of revenue for nonprofits, one and a half million of which are, you know, doing, you know, many of which are doing really vital work in this country, and most of which are small and community-based. And even the small and community-based nonprofits, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, visiting those organizations, are often supported by, by big donors, but they're rooted in communities. Malenka from the Hudson Weber Foundation agrees. I think it's an important critique and conversation and and something to pay attention to. Um, I also think that, you know, our politics are imperfect and meaning our political system is imperfect. And so while you can lob those critiques at philanthropy, you know, we are in a context where where there are special interests on all sides. Like it, it, from my perspective, it can't be that philanthropy then walks out of the conversation. Like that can't be the answer, Right. And I think it's important that we do that because that's where the humility comes from. But like the issues are urgent. And I don't think we can, you know, leave the table. I think we have to think about, given that critique, how we enter that table and create accountability systems for ourselves that we're, we know that we can be there with integrity and with impact. In the end, as long as philanthropy exists and plays a part in shaping our country's policies, it's important for funders to think about how to best direct those resources and be impactful. Kelly and Malenka, both leaders of foundations, see the importance of humility in their leadership 
and in the work of their philanthropies? We don't think that, you know, the Arnold Ventures team is going to outthink anyone else who's trying to address these issues. And we actually believe that it will take all of us coming to I- together to identify how to address the, uh, you know, out of control costs of healthcare, how to address the uh, pension crisis, the opioid epidemic. And so we recognize that we are just one small piece of a much bigger puzzle and, and that it's going to take all of us working together to make a difference. I feel like philanthropy has or is getting religion around this humility and around making sure that the work that they're doing, even as they drive towards an articulated policy objective or outcome, that it necessarily must be informed by local community. And I think, as I understand it, and I've not been in philanthropy very long, but that is, that is something that is new and it is really exciting to see. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to remember. One, there are two big questions of philanthropy at the moment. First, how do foundations make sure that their funds are driving as much impact as possible? And second, as philanthropy's impact increases, who's holding them accountable to the broader democratic project? Two, philanthropies are increasingly entering the advocacy space and exploring new structures like 501c4s to help complement their regular grant making. And three, Philanthropies can work to address concerns about lack of accountability by pursuing greater transparency, local partnership, and collaboration to ensure their impact is as inclusive as possible. So that's our show. Big thank you to Malenka Clark, Kelly Ree, Phil Buchanan, and Ben Soskis for speaking with us. You can find more about their organizations and our work in the show notes on our webpage, www.urban.org slash critical value. If you enjoyed this show or previous episodes, please take a second to share and share and share with your friends and your colleagues. We love getting connected to other smart, policy-minded folks out there. And if you have a second, it would be awesome if you could go on iTunes and give us a rating there as well. Thank you. Thanks also to Jacinth Jones, Katie Smith, and Rob Abair for all their help and our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. 